You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. This is episode 22, and we're your hosts, Brandon and Daniela. Hi. Hello. I was looking at the news this week, and there's not really a whole lot, but I didn't know that Limburger was only made in Wisconsin within the United States, that it's the only place in the United States where Limburger... Cheese. Yes, the stinkiest, if not one of the stinkiest cheeses around. Have you ever had it? I don't think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I now want to go to Monroe, Wisconsin and, and try some directly from the source. But I can say, honestly, I have not tried it either. And I'm not sure which direction I'd lean towards liking it or not liking it. Probably would be another one of those re- acquired tastes, though. I say we make a trip out there and check it out. And then a next- firm up trip. Next podcast, uh, we talk about it. Uh, probably not this next podcast. Especially since we live in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah, it's a, you know it's a couple hours away from here, I believe. But uh, it we should do it at some point. Maybe we can interview the people that make it or something along those lines. But that will be in the future. But in this 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 article, uh, it was just on Huffington Post, so nothing too specific. But uh, it you know the sign says for the place that makes it Limburger, don't eat it with your nose. So it must smell really bad. Well, it, it does. Which is fine. I just wonder if it's like a feet smell versus just a... Yeah, feet, a, like dirty black socks yeah, kind of feet I smell. I probably would not. But if it's so bad, <laughs> I think if it's so bad, then it couldn't be that bad. And, and, and you know, I really should have tried it by now, but I, I now I, I have to, now that I'm really thinking about it. I think that I might like it if I can get over the smell. You probably will. You just like anything exotic or yeah, weird. It was, it, was, it was kind of interesting, though. I mean, it was... Like in in the within the United, it was going on before this. It was first concocted in the the nineteenth century by monks of the Duchy of Limburg. Limburger, Limburg makes sense. But in in the United States, it was in the eighteen eighties. It was smeared on a foul. Uh, they smeared the foul smelling bacteria onto the to the rind of the cheese to make it age quickly. So it's a washed rind cheese um, made with cow's milk, but it was to age it quickly and get that nice funky funky smell. And they are in essence, backslopping, they're using from the previous batch. They're using the bacteria from this because I don't really know if there's any direct set starter cultures of Limburger cheese variety or if you really kind of have to have the bacteria. Do you think that there's only one because it's so stinky that it doesn't sell that much? Well, well? it was very popular in New York and other places in the early Americas, uh, but it was... uh, you know, made on Limburger sandwiches and he generally drank with beer. And so when prohibition happened, it also hurt the cheese. The cheese. I mean, I guess, I don't know if they're, I don't know if it's referring to it. You kind of have to be a little inebriated in order to enjoy it or get over the smell, or if that's just kind of what it went with. So once that was, once there wasn't beer to go to wash it down yeah, it just kind of lost its favor. But they're they're still making in the Monroe Cooperative is what makes the uh, the Chalette Cheese Cooperative is is what makes this this cheese and and they're making seven hundred thousand pounds a year so they're still making a decent amount I don't know how that uh, yeah compares to other cheeses well, but probably not like to cheddar or something which I think is the most commonly eaten cheese in the U S yeah definitely doesn't compare to that but that's still seven hundred thousand worth. 700,000 pounds worth of cheese that people are eating still. So 
you know, and it's interesting. We should the, ask them when we go why there's only one maker of well, this for the same cheese. reason that the, the you know there's probably just isn't the demand for it. But but it's interesting. The other reason why I'd like to go is because a week old limburger on a cracker with strawberry and jam is kind of a way that they will initiate people into the mm, process of, of trying it. And at, at a week, it's a, it's a pretty mild and crumbly, and the texture is more like feta. Okay. I don't know what the scent is like. They didn't mention that. But at two months, it's rich and creamy, and it resembles more of a brie, which you still eat brie's, and so that would still be something you'd probably eat. And then it's not until after six-month point that it it assaults the senses with an odor so overpowering that it, to compare it to smelly feet seems too kind. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where it sets um, in there. I mean, yeah, that's interesting because smell really is a big part of taste, so... The other thing we'll have to check out when we go out that way to Monroe is they also have a National Historic Cheese Making Center and Museum. We'll definitely have to do that. I It'll be a firm up adventure. But uh, other cheese news. Is that like the cheese hub for Wisconsin? <laughs> no. I mean, I just think that it's there's probably many National Historic Cheese Making Centers and Museums or, or things of that nature throughout the United States. And I guess we Americans do love our cheese. In museums. You know, in small towns. Yeah. Seems to be a lot I guess, of like. Yeah, little, if they don't have a lot I don't to think this offer. Is a huge let's museum. make a museum. You know, I mean, there's Mustard Museum in this area and different things like that. I mean, Which so. Which I still want to check out. Yes, well, then. W- Can you buy mustard at the at the museum? I'm not an expert of the Mustard Museum. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Go but ahead. Other things regarding cheese, there's really not much of an update on the Mimolette ban, the ban on. Or not the ban. It's not a ban. It's the, 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 the holding of about a ton of mimolette, the French cheese with cheese mites on it, being held in custody in New Jersey. Yeah, because of the mites in the cheese. Yeah. And so the only bit of an update really, well, the, the main update is that it's finally being covered by major news sources, as in NPR did a little brief on it on, I believe on Sunday they did okay. did that, uh, and or Saturday. Uh, and... Maybe it was Friday. I'm okay, getting all my matter. days mixed up. But I, anyway, it was um, was the only pretty much update was that they were able to get the FDA's Patricia L. Henwe that she said there's no official limit, which was already something we knew, but that the, the target is no more than six mites per square inch. That is great. Which is uh, near impossible for Mimolette. So it's not something that's really. Uh, oh, wait. What do you mean? It's It's usually there a lot more. Yeah, I mean, six mites per square inch would be very minimal. And, you know, it's so, like... So, really? I guess to me that seemed like, okay, amount. Well, yeah, I mean, depending on how long... The thing is that I would question is, how do you get six mites in that specific square inch? No, I think that would be the average, I'm assuming. Oh, the average over okay. how many square say, inches there are. No. I thought you had to like have them separated... And a little a little hurting going on. It's like okay, so there's there's twelve in this one and three in this one. Let's let's hurt a few over and maybe we can spread them out this way. You mean something like that? So do you think they changed their rules then? No, there's no there's no official limit, but that's what to aim for. Well, okay, so yeah, Wait. I don't. Again, it's one of those things where we just have no idea. There's there's a whole lot not going on, but uh, but NPR is now covering it, which it's it's funny because I have google alerts out for certain things to keep up on all the news on all these different kinds of things and once npr covered it that's when you know all the other little small blogs or different things a a lot more it's like hey but we were so way ahead well there have been places definitely have been places covering it but 
NPRs. I think the first one that I've seen other than major French online uh, news sources of sorts. So, but we still have a lot to learn. The NPR thing also had uh, Rachel Dutton. They asked her questions about it, you know, over at Harvard, the microbiologist. uh, And uh, so, which is, it's an interesting read. So the link is in the show notes at firmup.com. She was talking about microorganisms in food and how they're a part of so much and the fear of something like this. Yes, there have been cheese mites, or, or there, there, there has been some findings that cheese mites may cause cause some allergens, but this is something that uh, I, I'm going off the top of my head. I can't remember exactly all that she had to say specifically about it, but you know, it's it's an interesting reading in that regard. So, firmup.com/slash/podcast/slash/22 will get you the link to the NPR article and soundbite recording. But we'll keep you updated if there's any more Mimolet news and if we actually ever get full confirmation on on what's going on with this 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 cheese but a little bit of follow-up regarding last week's episode where we were talking kind of a little off topic about cow's milk and how often the cow needs to be impregnated and different stuff like that but then first was also uh, a wet nurse being a woman who is breastfeeding a child that is not her own what's that in other words, rich people's kids. No, and wet, wet nurses have been used throughout history. So for different... Yeah, wasn't it for like wealthy families? Yeah, well, okay, that was definitely sometimes. But no, it, it, different cultures have different reasons for using wet nurses. And it's obviously not always called a wet nurse, but... It's so funny because in the culture we're in today, that just seems so distant. I think you still maybe get that to a certain extent. Really? But looking at what I'm trying to follow up on is, is um, you know, that regular breast suckling will elicit lactation. So it's so bizarre. So if like it, it was once thought that, you know, even wet nurses had to have recently had a child in order to be able to breastfeed other children. But as long as that sucking action continues happening, it's a neural reflex of prolactin production and secretion, which creates that milk flowing sensation. That and, is just so crazy because I always, I guess, thought the hormones have to be current or in place for, a, a lect, you know, for breastfeeding. And that generally happens when one gets pregnant or has a child. So it is, that's very interesting. That's news to me that someone could just start producing milk. Well, someone, well, these are still from generally, wet nurses are still, they had a child, but how long they can keep going beyond um, oh, oh so you're keep... not saying you can just start producing milk just by like sucking on someone's... Well, some uh, adopt, like mothers that adopt children, ha- adopt infants, have been able to use a breast pump and get the milk flowing. That's, I guess, what I thought you were talking about. And that was what was bizarre to me. Yeah, no, that that is that is kind of crazy. So I don't know if you could translate that to cows. Because I knew for females you could breastfeed as long as the child wants to eat, I guess. Which is why we even got into this topic because it's like, okay, well, cows are in... Uh, you know, artificially inseminated or bred every so often to keep having baby cows, calves, so that they can keep producing milk. And I think it has, I, again, I couldn't find any, I didn't do a whole lot of time spent on, on finding research on this, but with, with cows, they're the female cows, the, the, the heifers, you know, they start breeding around 13 months. 
And then about every year, at least they're usually impregnated. And I'm guessing it's probably for production reasons that they're being impregnated that often, but it does seem like their reactions from being pumped doesn't create that same sensation as in in humans yeah i think i also read that they can go i mean two or three years sometimes just producing milk okay so then so they can do it Um, to a certain extent it sounds like yeah from the research i've done that it really depends on the cow too just how in some females mothers produce more some produce less milk and some can't really produce much at all and kids are formula fed it seems that cows kind of have a similar you know it's like a, a from a cow to cow. It depends on a cow, essentially, how much they can produce. And well, yeah, and, and some of the other stuff I was you know, reading about in the dairy industry is that if a cow starts out you know, being impregnated at that 13 months, they go nine months with their uh, roughly nine months before they have their calves. And if they're not a heavy producer, they'll usually just be slaughtered and, and replaced by another cow in order sounds to... Sounds like farm life. Yeah, I mean, it's it's economics of farming. and It's the, the reality. It's a little brutal, but... But I guess the crazy thing is that they live 20 years. Well, they can live. In dairies, they don't live 20 years. I mean, they generally will milk for about four years on average. And I don't know where the line, obviously, if someone has their own dairy in their hobby farm or, or real farm or otherwise, and they're just milking not as, as for dairy production for a whole thing, they can definitely probably milk for a large portion of that time period. But in general, their production will go down after four years and then they're sent to slaughter. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, it's it's... It's tough. You it's know, being a cow. Yeah, a dairy cow in the United States is yes, is, it does sound like it's a little tough. Well, it's know. just because people don't see other and benefit for it, and it's a large animal to keep. They eat a lot. And, yeah. yeah, but so why? Uh, I mean, and I also wonder, you know, if it is it is interesting to think about, like the 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 differences between human breast milk and cow udder milk. In the sense of, I almost wonder too, if I'm sure humans run out of the ability to milk eventually, but it sounds like they can go a lot longer possibly, you know, yeah. uh, especially parents that have, are breastfeeding seven-year-olds or otherwise. I mean, they can they can stretch out for a long period as long as that suckling action continues to happen. But that's also, I think, partly because humans are breastfeeding or can um, receive the nourishment from breastfeeding for much longer because they're much slower to develop, whereas calves are developing rather quickly. I mean, humans yeah. are not ready to to reproduce at 13 months, whereas cows are. Yeah, I, I could see that. So, so it's in, in the... a sense, it's like humans just have it innately built in because, well, also it's very nice if there is, if there is little nutrition in an area or little little food or otherwise, they can continue being breastfed. Whereas cows are generally, they wouldn't have necessarily needed to evolve that way. I, I'm not taking this from any expertise or otherwise, I'm just trying to think out loud, but they would generally have something to graze on true uh, yeah once they you know so like they're Grass. not going to or they may not if there's not food they may not keep suckling anyway they may just outgrow that whereas human babies i think or children can continue to, to eat for a while i don't know it's it's interesting comparing breast milk to udder milk but a lot of differences i'm sure yes looking at one other a bit of uh, things that came up in in my new search for the the week were Michael uh, Pollan doing a, a a little talk snippet, a little video snippet that I have in the the show notes uh, for PBS, and it was he was talking about going over to South Korea and learning kimchi making 
from a woman there. And she was talking or the translator was translating something that he was kind of confused at at first regarding hand taste and hand taste. He thought was almost being misinterpreted. He was reading from his book, I believe this was at the beginning of the week. So I don't remember for sure, but I think it's from his, his book cooked, but he was not understanding hand taste at first, but hand taste he is referring to as the taste of love. It's the, it's the, the taste imparted by the person creating something by hand. Kind of like bread making. Like bread making. And that's what we're going to talk about today is sourdough and just bread in general a little bit, but mainly sourdough because that's where you can really have that hand taste, that, that taste of love, if you will, or just care and... Oh, you just love the fermented taste. Well, I, yeah, there's that too. Um, so sourdough bread is just amazing in so many different ways. But a book that I've been looking at a little bit more recently is tartine bread and it's it's by chad robertson and it's seems like a really good book and the basic country bread that it has in it really has nice detailed descriptions understanding of why a person is doing what they're doing and little step-by-step photos so especially for someone just getting into bread making it seems like it's a really good book for the basics of it and they also described a pot which which helps a lot with the forming of the the crust and of the expansion of the dough which you can find in there it's a it's a little cast iron dutch oven of sorts but it's it's a combo thing dutch it's oven? it's different than a normal dutch oven but i have a link for that in the show notes that goes to amazon too but it's uh it's interesting in the sense that it allows for well stepping back bakery a bakery is is using generally a steam oven that produces steam in the beginning of the, once you put the bread in the oven at the beginning stages, when it's rising steam is what keeps the outside moist in order so that the bread can, can, can rise before the crust forms. And then the crust that also helps with the crust formation to get that nice crispy crust. But otherwise the heat will start to form the outside and solidify the outside to a certain extent, inside very... which won't let the, the will even... only allow the inside to rise so much. Whereas like that, that, so that steam is very important. Those kind of ovens are very expensive. There's different ways of trying to, you know, get some of that steam in there. I've done things. I, I mean, I haven't really done a lot of sourdough bread making for quite a few years, but when I was, I was trying things like putting a pan of water underneath or which spraying is recommended it every... in some books. What's yes. And, and, or like opening up real quick to try not drop the temperature of the oven or compensating by having the temperature a little higher at first and then opening the oven real quick and spraying misting water in real quick with the uh, water nozzle spray and then then closing it again real quick and none of those seem to really work so well for me i didn't really try them a whole lot so this one's new to me and it's using this you could use any kind of dutch oven but this one's a nice little combo one it's it's cheap too it's only like thirty dollars for a lodge cast iron uh, skillet, but uh, any kind of, again, if you have a Dutch oven already, definitely try it with that. But the idea is that the Dutch oven is going to, there's enough moisture in the bread to create the, the steam in those first few minutes, which are going to be important for that rising again. And so it creates, it's just an instant enclosed space where moisture content is a lot more controlled and it creates that steam that's necessary or the, the humidity that's necessary. That so that was you... a, that was a nice trick. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm waiting for one to arrive. So I'm excited to try it too. Yeah. So, and you have been making a lot more breads. 
I I have um, not by any means something I'd consider professional. Um, I tend to just kind of, as people should know by now, do my own thing, read part of their instructions or recipe, but then kind of just play with the rest of it. Um, and so I've been making this bread recently that I really like um, with a uh, a liquid starter uh, where um, I incorporated um, rye flour in with um, white flour. So this is something you're just making up? Yeah, I, ma- I made it up. I, I've never made rye flour before or bread before. I've only really had experience with like white flour. Um, and so I thought, oh, let's just try this and see what happens. So it, it was just a completely not following any recipe, but I ended up just using one cup of liquid um, starter with uh, one cup of water, um, one cup of rye flour, and um, one cup of white flour, and I mixed it all together. I was going to let it sit for 30 minutes because I read in a book that it's good to just kind of let it rest. And then my plan was to knead it and then let it sit again, but then I forgot about it for about 8 or 10 hours. And so then I, that's when I took it out. I then poured more white flour on the surface of a kitchen counter so I can knead the bread. It was really, really sticky. Um, super but sticky, sticky is good. It is. It's just rye flour tends to just really stick. And I've had experience before where when I'm kneading the dough, eventually it stops being so sticky. It's sticky, but it kind of works itself out. And this was just mainly with rye flour. So this was, I think, rye flour. I'm, it's just not the same flour. So it's diff- different to work with. Um, but yeah, I... I probably added a half a cup of flour to just the surface to knead the dough and it didn't really work too well but then I put it back in the container and let it sit overnight again and in the morning kind of the same thing again with adding another probably half a well, yeah half a cup of flour white flour to knead the dough some more not too long just briefly to kind of just so it's not very sticky and then I put it in a just like a, a baking pan with um oil at the bottom and um sprinkled flour on top and let it bake i think it was like 25 minutes um on 300 and oh 400 degrees and um let it sit for 10 minutes afterwards and it was really delicious so it sounds like you're and gonna- there was no steamer or anything like that this was just like in a pan and just very simple like home yeah the the taste of that was very uh very nice very especially for something you just made without even having a whole lot of background in no yeah i'm I'm very i'm a very much a beginner when it comes to making breads period i mean i've always made like the traditional cookies breads with the, the stuff i grew up eating you know bleached white flour um with quick yeast from a mom she still lets it sit for like four or five hours um so it ferments a little but not like the the long overnight ferments and um so you do have some experience in bread making and knead so the kneading aspect of it at least you are at least a little bit more familiar yeah yes that's that's something i've seen my mom do since i was a little kid i mean that's part of yeah i mean she does a very simple she mixes the dough and flour and water or the water and flour and and yeast and salt and then lets it sit and then kneads it at the end before she puts it in the pan to bake. Um, so yeah, I grew up around that, but I've, I've never had a, a sourdough starter, um, or anything like that. And it's, 
it's really, it's easy. Um, it's really not difficult. I think for me, what becomes overwhelming is, are just all the options and different ways and every book has a different recommendation. So it's just so hard to kind of just, you know, choose one or so, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's my issue is just the, all of the options out there. And so recommendations. It does sound though, once you, if you practice a little bit more with this one that you were just describing, it sounds that you will be posting on the firm up website, a blog post about your recipe. Yes. I am. Since you made I'm it making, up yourself. I, I think I, I'm sure maybe it exists somewhere. Um, well, who knows? sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, I'm going to make it a few more times before this becomes a, um, anything legit, I guess. So yeah, I'm, I am actually, I started another, cause it's the, the the original bread is gone um but I, I have started a new batch so um it's actually fermenting right now and tomorrow it should i'm going to ferment it again for eight to ten hours or overnight ferment it and then in the morning bake it and see if it's i just want to make sure it kind of becomes a it's somewhat a consistent outcome i mean of course i think it's going to depend on the starter and and actually it might be a slightly different just because the the first time I used a liquid starter that had originally been mainly fed white flour. Mm-hmm. Um, this time I use a starter that's been fed only um, whole wheat flour. So since you've been talking about these starters, how about you step back and tell us what a starter is? A, a, a sourdough starter? Well, it's really simple. So instead of using yeast, um, you a person could choose to use a, a a sourdough starter, which essentially is just flour and water mixed together that have sit, um, you know, you ferment the, well, you activate the yeast already present or the bacteria already present in the flour by adding water and leaving it out at a room temperature and, con- and feeding it um, to every 24 hours, like three to four days or sometimes longer, depending on the temperature. Um, and then making sure it's being stirred every eight hours. And even with that, I mean, if one forgets to do it, it's not going to hurt the, the sourdough starter. Yeah, but pretty, essentially, pretty forgiving, it seems. Yeah, essentially it replaces, replaces the quick yeasts. And what's nice about it is, you know, if someone likes to be consuming more of a ferment, well, plus the bread just tastes so much better with like when it wants it's fermented longer. And, um, but yeah, so that's, it's a very simple, it's just flour and water, um, I've read recipes where people add pineapple juice and I've just, just some crazy things out there, which are, is fine. It's just pineapple juice. I don't understand as much except for balancing the, well, it's like, I, I guess, um, I read something about giving it the, I think like the sugars or okay. To, the sugars in that. Yeah. To feed, which isn't really needed. Um, the important thing, I guess, from what I read is make sure the water doesn't have any, um, chlorine in it, that it's uh, filtered water just because it can kill the, the bacteria, um, in the flour, or the already active, um, yeasts that are present in the flour. So that's really, it's, but it's really simple. And, um, like I said, there are many resources online that, are just there's so much information on sourdough and from a little research i did although i think it's cool um it seems like it it doesn't necessarily it's not super important to have a a, like a a really old sourdough starter that's been passed down on like for you know centuries um this one author and i cannot think of his name 
it's a book that I'll have you put in the show notes, but, um, he, I mean, he, he mentions that, you know, you can start a sourdough starter and it could be just as good as the one that's a hundred years old. It's just, it's, it's going to be a different bacteria. And I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast, maybe too. Well, the other thing about that is they are going to stabilize out, stabilize out over time, dependent on the environment that they're, they're yeah, prepared in. Exactly. So everyone's kitchen is going to, as a person own. makes more sourdough, the environment is going to have different bacteria and yeast floating around in the air. It's just going to be an environment full of, right? Like if, if a person starts fermenting meats or fermenting anything, the environment that we cannot see, the microbial environment in the air on surfaces will be covered with these things that we use regularly. And, well, yes. that's And the one thing that is not necessarily an old it has to be a really old starter, but the one thing that I do remember is that sourdoughs are different when they're young. So if you're starting a sourdough starter from scratch, it's different than one that has been going and being having been fed regularly for, say, six months, a year plus. I don't know what the differentiating mark really is, but they will be different because at first it's a wild community and it's it's going to stabilize out and figure out what works. And once and in generally the younger the starter the more, the more wild. Yeah, the more complex, the more diverse it is. And then as it mellows out in with age, it has more specific strains and just a few because the bacteria and yeast start to work in harmony and you know, specific ones figure out present. what works out. So there are differences, definitely differences between different people's True. Your, or, or but I guess starters. not necessarily better is what I was trying to come across. So someone who can just start their own, that's just as good. It's just going to be a different, um, yeah, a different bacteria that's going to be introduced. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, well, with any kind of fermentation, it's not necessarily that things are better or worse. It's just that they are different. And the complexity of the, the taste, the taste profile, so not the complexity necessarily of the starter culture, but of the complexity in flavor profile of the finished bread is going to be different depending on not only where a person eats the bread or the bread is made, but also the age of the starter or what the starter is made with if you're always making a rye starter or always making a, a wheat starter or a blend of some sorts. Those are going to affect the overall complexity of flavor and the, the, the actual starter itself. So there will be differences, but yes, like you said, not necessarily Which better. Which brings me to my point. There, It could be overwhelming for me. That I think that's what's overwhelming. Sometimes I just want simple information that it's like, well, you can do this or you can do that. Um, and I think that some people are going to love that. And I mean, it's great. The flexibility is great. And that's, I think for me, I started following a recipe that was mainly, um, the, the starter was being fed white flour, um, like a third cup, um, white flour with, and then initially just added a tablespoon of whole wheat flour. And I did that for a while. And, um, the starter, I mean, it was fine. I was reading instructions, following the smelling it, you know, observing it. It was great, but, I really do like feeding my starter whole wheat flour. So I have two going on right now, um, actually three, but the third one is uh, a whole new topic. Um, the second one that I feed is mainly whole wheat flour. And I just like, I feel like it's more alive. Um, like when I stir it, it just bubbles more and just seems more crazy in there. And um, But uh, but the other one works just as well. And it, it's just a personal preference. And um, I feel like the 
I'm sure there's a difference in taste in bread too. I haven't, I, I haven't, I meant to, but I haven't actually made two identical loaves that I can compare with two different starters, um, which I would like to do. But I personally like to feed my starter whole wheat flour all the time. And then when I bake, I can use any kind of flour with that starter. Um, and there's probably better flours out there, definitely. But I think you just use a, a King Arthur. Yeah, King is that, Arthur is the one I use. Which um, is still make, a, a decent flour for making breads. But I mean, yeah. Um, I'm sure if you were grinding your own, that'd be even more hardcore and better. But uh, Probably, yes. would be fresher for sure. Yeah, I just use that because it's re- it's easily available at the grocery store I go to, and um, also the author, which I cannot remember the name of the book right now, um, had recommended that in his book. So I just kind of well, let me know, and we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, so that's just what I follow. But I think um, there are definitely quite a few um, brands out there that one can use. Just make sure they're, um, you know, whole wheat flour, un- unbleached white flour, stone ground. So does bleached flour not work for a sourdough starter? I don't, I don't think so. What would, is it just because it's been so processed, heavily processed that it just doesn't, because you are getting, it's, it's the bacteria in the air. It's the back, it's the bacteria and it's the microbes in the air. It's the microbes on the hand of the the baker. It's on, on the flower. So it's coming from a lot of different places. It is. And I think, I don't, honestly, I'm not sure if starting it would work, but I think I have read where they say, if you have a good starter, feeding it even oh, yeah. bleached flour is going to keep it going it but i think that. the initial phase is more crucial just to make sure it actually gets going so i don't i i'm sure it would work but i'm not i don't know actually 100 percent. let's Plus, do an experiment and see yeah but why even i mean well for people that bleached flour is just not necessary for any okay reason. so you're saying so even a cheap unbleached flour will probably work it doesn't really the the quality of the bread well, maybe change but yeah i i mean it seems like the, i mean yeah sure it's kind of like drinking coffee you can yeah i mean you'd want to i would think one would want to get a good quality flour because that's all the bread is mm-hmm. i mean preferably even organic flour it's probably a lot more expensive but um you're not using organic flour I'm though, not at correct. the moment um but i'm just saying if someone has the option to use organic and why not use the best flour out there? Sure. I'm just I'm just curious for someone that's looking for a point of entry and maybe they only have access to something of of so-called lower quality, cheaper flours. I I mean, I'm almost certain that would work, but I would try I'm staying away certain. from bleached flour. Unbleached. Sure. That makes sense. Any unbleached flour, um, stone ground possibly. I think when I was about five years ago when I was doing some rye breads i wasn't using a super fancy rye i just used whatever i could find you so had a rice starter yeah back when i was doing 100 percent rice starter yeah that's i think i'd like to try that too soon i'm just kind of wanting to at least get a handle of this first since i tend to get overwhelmed with all of the options it's just kind of one step at a time yeah i wasn't super successful i mean i was doing way too well, many think... things probably at the same time but i i wasn't i was like really interested in doing 100 percent rye breads and they just kind of turned out as bricks that were super sour and i think i also liked to over ferment things because i liked that nice sour flavor and i was i was you went too much overboard sure yeah probably well that's why when i with this um with this bread that i started today or did earlier um i mixed one cup rye with white flour just because i was like i don't i i have rye is just a completely unfamiliar 
uh, flour to me and I was like, I should probably just mix something that I know but rise well. And, and it did, it, um, I mean, it got pretty fat <laughs> in the, in the oven. So, but yes, I will definitely experiment with this flour and, or with this recipe. And if it works well, I'll have you post it. I just don't want to do anything yet. Um, yeah. It. Well, I mean, because there is, there definitely are all kinds of different breads out there and there's, so any book on classic or, or sourdough breads is going to be beneficial. And, uh, tartine bread is only one of those. And you can find many at, at the library. Library is definitely a good place to go. But I say really, for sourdough books. I just want to point out though, that honestly, homemade bread, especially if it's fermented a little longer, I mean, there's just such a noticeable difference in, in that bread versus any store-bought bread, unless you're going to a specialty baker, you know. A, 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 that is also a, doing sourdough yeah. breads. Yeah. I'm talking about just like, just making, just trying it, it makes such a big difference. Of course, don't do it unless you plan on eating the whole lo- loaf. That's what happens to me. It's just so difficult to not want to eat all of it right away. It's so good. It's just, it's amazing. And it's simple, except that a few recipes do require more care but yeah and and i mean the first breads were super simple i mean bread in general is just water and flour of some sort and 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 that can be traced back way back to uh um babylonian times or egyptian times or different places throughout history have been making breads in different ways i mean so some of the first ones were 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 taking uh, barley was you know one of the first grains that were being used and and using that and mixing it with water or milk and so and then being air dried or stone heated on or heated on hot stones and different things like that so i mean throughout history people have been making breads the first leavened breads seem to be from egypt though so the first ones that are actually rising instead of flat breads because there's a lot of flat breads even today throughout different cultures and ethnic foods and whatnot but but definitely the the rising really seemed to happen um, they were making their leaving breads 3000 BC or so. So quite a long time ago. Um, and like you were, you keep referring back to, you know, store-bought breads versus other kinds of breads. And, and so the one thing is really, yes, the, while the baker's yeast has been, uh, is, is kind of what the normal yeast or the yeast that your mother uses to make bread and different things. It's that quick yeast. Yes. It's uh baker's yeast. Uh, is is the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, but it's the, I mean it's the same thing that's used in a lot of different yeasts, and it's it's grown on molasses generally. I as as far as I've been able to find, and so it's an it's not quite say like in the yogurt or cheese world of a direct set starter. It's just a specific strain that's being grown, and I, I mean it is a direct set starter to us pretty much but it's just an isolated strain of yeast that is then being used to to raise the bread whereas with sourdough it's actually bacteria and yeast and something that i wasn't familiar with was that the ratio to bacteria to yeast to, most of it uh, the bacteria is lactic acid bacteria and so that's where that sourness comes from the rising comes from mainly the yeast but the bacteria are what create most of the flavor and so that's where it makes sense. You're talking about store-bought breads, ones from the that the Industrial Revolution really made popular. Those are the kind of ones that industrialized bread is all about making it quick. So, I mean, you're talking about things that are 
done fermenting in a couple hours because it is still fermentation. So you can't say that it's not, but it's it's done in a couple hours as opposed to 12 to 24 hours to fully ferment a sourdough bread because it takes longer and also put that long, that length of time. And some people even extend that even farther by refrigerating, you know, to slow the fermentation way down, but keep it going for even longer than 24 hours in order to create more complex flavors. So that complexity just isn't there when you're doing something quick, like so many other things, it seems, but with the the ratio of bacteria to yeast in sourdough is about a hundred to one. So the lactic acid bacteria, about a hundred to one of, of the yeast. So there's very little yeast in a sourdough starter. I thought it was a little bit, the, the ratio was a lot, lot higher, but there's, there's very little yeast com- yeah. relative to I, how much bacteria there was. There's either. quite a bit of bacteria, I guess is another way to say it. There, there's maybe a lot more bacteria than I, I imagined is probably a, a, a more clear way because it's not saying that there's not, yeast in it. It's just saying there's a lot more bacteria. And yeah, it really does create that, that aromatic bread and that flavor that you can smell and taste if you crack open the bread or cut open the bread. And it's just, it's there. I mean, that flavor and that taste way different. So easily. um, Especially it's wonderful bread. It's not like wonder bread. And I mean, I don't even think I've ever had wonder bread, but that's what I think of when I think of like, I have, it doesn't, it tastes like butter. Tastes like butter, really? I don't know. Butter I always thought and it flour. would taste like kind of like glue, like like the paste you can make from white flour. I'm, I was and water. Well, margarine. I think that's what reminds me of like margarine and margarine. flour. I don't know. It has that. It has. Yeah, like I've definitely never weird... had. That. I've never really to eaten me. too many. I've eaten a lot of white breads that are kind of uh, bakery fresh or otherwise, or just better, but not like... like like a packaged breads. I grew up on on whole wheat breads and different things like that. Not necessarily those were any better, any better but. But yeah, so I wasn't, I, I, I can't say I've had a lot of, I haven't had like the traditional sliced bread, the white bread. I've never really had that. And I think the like couple times that maybe I've had it like at a, at a friend's house when I was growing up on peanut butter and it just, it, it tasted, it was so sticky, like almost. Yeah. I mean, my mom's bread is a little, um, little sticky, <laughs> um, even though it's homemade. Um, and I think that's probably because of how it's baked. It's now that you explain the steaming factor and the importance of that in bread, it's, I feel like occasionally her bread doesn't cook evenly. So sometimes on the, like the center of it maybe isn't fully cooked. Not every time, obviously, but, um, but I grew up eating homemade white bread. Um, but it was very much a quick, you know, Fermented in a, in a few hours and yeah, then ready to go. Yeah, and then like, um, and then bleach white flour and all of that. But I mean, still, even that bread when she'd make it, um, sometimes the the loaf would be gone between my brother and myself and my dad. It's just it's so good. I mean, but now that I'm making different type of bread and long ferments, it there really is a big difference. It's just so good. Well, it's it, not only the the taste, but it's also nutrients are whether it's technically healthy, so-called healthy to be eating sourdough breads or not or whatnot, but the nutrients that are available, there's a lot more nutrients that are, that are unlocked by the fermentation process. So especially if someone's having like a, a mixed, even if there's white flour in it, if there's some whole wheat flour or, or, or rye or otherwise, you know, so great together. So there it's unlocking some of the, the nutrients um, the the it frees up more minerals that are digestible by us through separating the phytic acid. It's that long fermentation that allows that to happen. It's also that bacteria that's in it that's breaking down a lot of these compounds. And it's also arguably, or we had talked about that, like a, that news article that had mentioned uh, a few weeks back that was talking about 
gluten intolerance may be, that's one of the theories that it might be connected with all of the fast, quick rising breads that the industrial revolution made so popular that has been a part of this rise in, in uh, gluten intolerance or celiac disease Yeah, we too. did talk about that and I can completely see how that would make sense. Of course, I'm not sure, like we said, it's it's a theory, but... Um... Well, it's just in the sense that, well, there's certain quick breads that are part of history, but most of the breads anywhere near any of our heritages would have been slow fermented breads if they were risen breads. I mean, yes, there's quick breads, but um, oh, and the I don't even know where... alone is just so different. I mean, even comparing the bread I make with what my mom makes, um, which is the only really comparison I have. I mean, it, there isn't, the bread just doesn't look the same. It doesn't smell the same. Um, it's like once it's been fermenting, even for a few hours, the different, it, it looks different. The one I make looks more alive. Um, can, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a completely different process. It also supposedly extends the shelf life a little bit. I mean, we're looking the at, at the home because uh, it, it by several days it slows down the molding, and it also uh, it slows down like any rotting of it or or spoilage. Yeah, that's one thing I've learned about bread too. Is um you know like the more um, crust it has, essentially like a, a baguette. It's really only fresh for a day, whereas if it's a, a larger bread that has more um, of the soft, I don't know how to, it, a larger bread that um, isn't mainly a crust, that's main, it has a lot of the, the inside mm-hmm. of it, tends to um, last longer, which makes sense. Um, well, last longer, or when you say fresh, you mean so edi- like enjoyably enjoyably and edible i mean even like a baguette if you have it for two days it becomes really hard and it's very difficult and it works great for it will still last and work great for breadcrumbs and different things like that correct whereas if you have a a a loaf of bread that isn't mainly crust you know the next day you could still cut it and it's relatively soft and edible you're you're talking about a bread that's maybe made in a bread pan or, or yeah that isn't mainly crust Sure. You know, like a baguette is really skinny and it, there's not much oh, okay. meat to it. As I, I'm not sure what the terms are. So, Is that your term? Is that how you refer to bread? The The, no. the non-crust is meat? No, I that's just, I just made that up. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Yeah, I do, but I don't think that's what other people do. Is that the crumb or is that the crust? Is the crust, the crumb and the crust? Is that, well, is that what it is? Crumb is a crumb. I don't know. I, I never thought of crumb being... Isn't crumb part of the crust? I'm getting my baker's terminology kind of mixed up, so I'm not going to try and state either way. I don't really, I don't know. Whoever's listening to this who has a lot more experience is going to just laugh at us. Yeah. I really, sourdough bread, as long as a person doesn't have anything against carbs or breads or anything of that nature. I mean, I'm, I'm really not eating a whole lot of flour or wheat lately. Not really for any other reason, just just because, kind of like just eh. because. That, that. Well, just because. I mean, I don't know. I've I've just always eaten so much, so it kind of just feels like yeah. Let's just not. I've always eaten a lot of wheat, and I've always eaten a lot of corn, so I'm just not eating that much. But I'm not following any kind of diet or or doing it specifically for any total reason, uh, except that. You think you feel I, better? Yeah, and so that that's totally anecdotal, and and I have no idea, and so I've been. 
eating though these sourdoughs a little bit more recently. So in in you know, I don't feel any worse. Sometimes it does bread does feel a little heavy after not eating much bread for a long while. Just eating, you know, rice is a main form of no no wheat or corn. I mean, bread feels a little a little heavy. It is heavy and um... especially though with good sourdough bread where it's like I just want to eat it as soon as it comes out. I'm not really eating it with much else, so that could be some of the heaviness coming well, out too. I was going to say when I made my french baguettes and I ate quite a few of those, I actually kind of did get a stomach ache afterwards just cuz um But that's all you ate, wasn't it? Yeah. You ate that and on butter. with butter. You ate an entire <laughs> That was that's pretty much my dinner. Oh, more than one. I think I ate two. Yeah, I I had a stomach ache, a slight stomach ache well, just because, because that was didn't... so much bread. But the bread I made with rye flour and white flour, which was a mixture, I ate almost the same amount today. Sure, it wasn't all in one sitting. It's that probably makes hard. a difference. But I had, did not get any cramps that I got eating the the baguette. Which, yeah, it could be that I and didn't I don't... eat as much all in one sitting, but I did not feel any kind of... Yeah, it's a little heavy, but it's... I mean, that's to be expected with bread. And I think for me, I take it probably much better than you do just because I grew up eating everything with bread. So sure. it's just, for me, I can't really eat, you know, baked or, or fried eggs without some kind of carb. It's just, it kind of upsets my stomach, actually, if I don't, unless it's a boiled egg. It must be a cultural thing. Maybe it is. And, you know, I, we will definitely dive in deeper to sourdough in, in future episodes. As we learn. Yes, as as we continue to learn other things. But other cultural things is uh, something I've tried before, but I am trying again is is jump switching just to, as we're closing into yogurt again. Because it's always about yogurt Are with me. Are you going to talk about Bulgarian? No, I was going to talk about uh, lassi or eran, uh, the drink oh, of... yes. Pretty much watered down yogurt. Which is actually very good. Yeah. And taking, you can, I haven't actually tried it with any of the, any other heirloom yogurts, but you can take a Bulgarian or a store-bought yogurt or, and at the, and use one part of that, uh, one part yogurt and say four parts of water, put some ice to it or blend it up. I use actually just a, like a, you could say a, a martini shaker kind of thing. And I'll just put some ice in there and then I'll strain out the ice. But I mix that up with a, with a pinch of salt up to like a teaspoon of salt, but just a pinch of salt along with that, mix that up. And it's a nice refreshing drink. It actually really is. It's, it's great. It, like if it's hot outside and to have that, it's very good. I will agree with you there. Yeah. And it's, it's very simple. And like a uh, lassie, the would be the, the, the Indian version of this will sometimes be flavored otherwise, you know, maybe some cinnamon or, or different flavors. Sometimes it's sweetened. Otherwise it's not, but. And also you've been making more Bulgarian yogurt, which I'm loving. I totally stopped eating it for a while and was stuck on my, um, Matoni and. On, on some of your different heirloom yogurts, the, the mesophilic yeah. yogurts. And it's funny. But you still uh, like the thermophilic. Yeah, I, I missed it. Yeah, it's it's I like switching around all these different things, which is great about having all these different cultures is that besides keeping them all alive on a regular basis, even when I'm not in the mood for one of them a certain week, I just make a little amount and then I will then in, make more of a certain kind, different points. And yeah, it's definitely 
it's definitely a nice tart flavor. It's just there's something about that that the a lot of the other heirloom yogurts are missing. They they have all have their own unique traits, and I can't say that you know it's like a pet or a child. I can't really say that I have a favorite favorite. Like I have ones that I Isn't lean towards really? most of the time. Yeah, I'd I'd have to lean towards Vili and Pime, but coming but but the longer I'm away from other yogurts, the more they yeah, are kind of exciting too. I think that's me. I just realize how much i miss the other flavors yeah it's it, it, either way try it with an heirloom yogurt or try it with bulgarian or with store-bought but yogurt but if it, as it's starting to get a little warmer it's definitely a refreshing beverage and it seems really simple and it is really simple but water is pretty simple too and that can be so refreshing on a on a, on a warm day as well so it's but everyone likes water though so well yeah i'm just saying like you know it, it may sound simple but it's like sometimes that simpleness is just so nice and, you know, we were talking about the complexity of sourdough, but sometimes the simpleness of a, of a lassi or an eran, I don't know if they're technically the same thing, but they're both watered down yogurt. Some watered down yogurt along with some sourdough sounds nice and refreshing. And delish. Yeah. So if you have any specific questions about sourdough or apprehensions about starting doing things. Oh, yeah. Or... I did have a question for our listeners. Oh, for our question. Okay. Well, just regarding my um, stiff sourdough starter okay um stiff as in it has less water in it yeah the the flour to water ratio is not the same um as the liquid one that i do so um you know you generally uh, i the one i was following i add a third cup of flour to two tablespoons of water but it's just i don't know if it's just me where uh, it i don't know it smells really, it smells like it's fermenting properly, but it just doesn't look alive. This, it smells alive. It doesn't look alive. And I guess my question is, is, is that generally how stiff sourdough starter is? It just doesn't have that look, appearance that it's really alive, although it smells alive. And also, are there really any benefits to baking with stiff sourdough versus liquid because I, at this point, I'm really liking liquid starter, and, and I just want to know what the benefit is of baking with a, um, a a firm or, you know, a stiff starter. So, you know, anyone that has experience with it, I'd love to hear it. It seems like it would ferment slower with less moisture. Uh, yeah. Not, not the actual bread itself, but the starter culture. So maybe traditionally it comes in certain climates where there's either more... If it's hotter, hotter, you'd use that. Maybe, maybe that's maybe a good use point. That. So maybe it's something to do kind of in the summer, keep it a little dry. But again, I have no idea. So yes, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I And, and for me, I just haven't really been I, liking it that much. So I haven't done much with it, but... Um. It also seems like I'm, I'm, I wasn't familiar with the stiff ones really until you started doing it. So the other thing about it, it just seems like, it seems like a little bit more work to incorporate and feed, like a little bit more muscle used yeah, to, yes, to mix it up. Definitely, because you have to mix the, a lot more flour to... The, the liquid and... yeah but i guess yeah i'm curious now too it's so if any of you are have used a firm one or have luck with that definitely let us know or if you have any questions or anything about about sourdough if we don't know it we'll look it up and we'll we'll share it back with you you know either you know you can get a hold of us through through email at podcast at firmup.com you can leave notes on the you can leave comments on the, the show notes at firmup.com slash podcast slash 22. You can find us on Twitter at firmup, Facebook firmup, Pinterest firmup. Find us on Google Plus too. 
and you know, uh, send us your questions. And again, if, if we don't know the answers, we'll, we'll look it up and, and get back to you through whatever form that you set it in. Or, you know, if it's, if it's a good question that we can share with everyone, we'll definitely pass them along. So until next time, firm up. <laughs>